Hey everybody and welcome to part four of our series, Irresistible. We're taking a look at how we actually do believe that if we will come close to Jesus, if we will give him a chance to come close to us, that we would actually find that he is irresistible, like completely and totally irresistible. I think if we only knew how good God is, we'd want him too. And ironically, I think that's both for people that are exploring Christianity or, or religion in general, but I also think that that's relevant to people that are already in a relationship with God. And in some cases, people that have been in a relationship with God for, for decades. It's amazing how easily we can make Christianity about theory, about knowledge, or about behaviors, about do's and don'ts, or about social justice, or about generosity. And all of those things are good, but, but they're only good if they are coming out of an actual experiential relationship with Jesus. And it's amazing to me how, regardless of how much I know or don't know, or how much I do or don't do, really the game changer for me is when I'm actually experiencing um, the presence of Jesus, when I'm actually encountering Him, when I'm, when, when I'm giving Him the space to speak to me, to correct me, to encourage me, to direct me. I love uh, the passage in Psalms that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's our encouragement to you, just to keep opening yourself up to just tasting. Just, just give God a go. I always believe that we are the variable. God is good. God loves us. God wants us. God pursues us. But we are the variable. And so I really do want to encourage you to be open to exploring what that personal relationship with God looks like. And again, I just want to emphasize for a moment, especially those of us that have been in this relationship for many, many years. When's the last time that you can actually recall experiencing a sense of intimacy, a, a genuine supernatural sense of peace, or a, a prompting, a moving towards kindness, towards self-control, towards faithfulness? Has our relationship with God only become just rules and regulations, a behavior modification, trying harder, gritting our teeth, or, or, or image management, or, or is, it, is it a real vital relationship where we are allowing Him to impact and ultimately transform our lives? Last week, I took a look at how Jesus is our friend. Today, I want to take a look at the fact that Jesus is grace. Grace is not just a principle. Grace is a person. Jesus, Jesus embodies. He is the embodiment of grace. If you tuned in last week, I mentioned that grace is something that I've struggled with. Um, I'd love to say that I've only struggled with it in the early years of my relationship with God or before my relationship with God was healthy. But if I'm honest with you, I feel like it's one of those areas that I've had to come back to again and again and again and again. It's, it, it is so counterintuitive to my personality. It's so counterintuitive to my upbringing. It's counterintuitive to our culture. It's counterintuitive to the world. Grace is not about justice. But by nature, we want justice. And so, and so if you are justice-oriented, then you find it very hard to accept forgiveness, to accept mercy when you feel like you don't deserve it. And really, it's only grace when you don't deserve it. If you think, you've, if you think you deserve it, if you think you've earned it, if you think you've paid off your shortcoming, well, then you're not opening yourself up to grace. Then, then we're simply thinking that we've balanced the books. Um, on a personal level, many years ago, I came across a book by the author Philip Yancey, great book called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? And it's a book worth reading, frankly, but there was just one, there was one phrase that, 
that stuck that has stuck with me probably for 15, 20 years. And it's simply this. He says, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Just try not to get distracted. Take a, take a few seconds and let that sink in. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. Now, yes, if you're going to be really you know, logical and rational, yes, I can please God more, I can please God less, but God, I cannot do anything to make Him love me more. But conversely, I cannot do anything to make Him love me less. That is grace, and it's overwhelming, it's disconcerting. And you'll see in, in a few moments, I want to just maybe touch on a couple of stories that, that actually, it even just hit me in preparing this message, that, that in each of these stories, the people themselves were not looking for grace. Grace was looking for them. God was looking for people. You have actually never hunted grace. Grace has been hunting you down. Jesus has been hunting you down. I believe that, that God has been wanting to uh, draw close to us and warm our hearts. God doesn't change us by scolding our hearts. God changes us by melting our hearts. Yet we've been brought up to believe, I think subconsciously, that, that guilt and shame and condemnation will change us. And the scary truth is that it does for a few days. But it doesn't transform us from the inside out. Guilt and shame and condemnation can only last so long. And then you want to escape it again. And chances are you're going to escape it by doing the very thing that caused you to feel guilt and shame in the first place. But God actually melts our heart. He draws close to us. He pursues us. You have never pursued God without God first pursuing you. And I believe that that is grace. Another book that I honestly do believe is well worth reading and, and was quite formative just in my own personal understanding and relationship with God is a book by Timothy Keller called uh, The Prodigal God. And again, I wish I had time to unpack that, but just a couple of statements from this book that really stood out to me. One is that he says, uh, he's speaking about Jesus saying, he didn't come with a sword in his hand, but with nails in his hands. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Another statement he makes is that when you see what he's done for you, again, he's, talk, he's talking about Jesus. When you see what he's done for you, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. The best times, sorry, the, uh, the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. This is what grace does to us. And lastly, he says that we were so sinful that Jesus had to die for us, but we were so loved that he was glad to die for us. Jesus was willing to pay the ultimate price on the cross through his death and ultimately resurrection so that we could experience this grace, this healing, this relationship with God. Maybe you've even heard the word salvation. It comes from uh, the same root word that, that the English word salve comes from, which is to, which is to bring healing. And so, and so when the Bible talks about salvation, it's, it's often talking about the same word that we would use for healing. And so salvation is something that happens once, but it's also something that continues to take place. So we are, we are saved once, we are set free once, but He also continues to heal us. And that healing can only take place through the grace of God. It is only, it is only as we allow His grace to, to actually be, be rubbed into those areas of our lives that so disturb us, that so discourage us, that so freak us out, 
that we are actually able to, to experience increasingly the healing and the wholeness and the purpose and the destiny that God has for us. You know, I don't think I'm alone in this struggle with grace. I think that people in general struggle with the idea of grace. I think that the world struggles with grace. It might be worth noting, and, and you can chew on this, and if you disagree, you can maybe send me a message with your thoughts, but I believe that the single greatest differentiating, a differentiating factor between Christianity and every other world religion, every other worldview, is actually this idea of grace. Every other religion, worldview, culture, whatever you want to call it, is ultimately about what we have to do to save ourselves, to build ourselves up, to be all we want to be. Even in a religious aspect, so many religions often talk about what you have to do in order to become worthy, to, to get to God or to get to paradise or to get to eternal life. But Christianity is different in that it's all about what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us, how He came down for us. And again, if you're like me, you might find grace a little bit easier to accept once off in terms of salvation, and then you find it harder to accept as you walk with God longer because you feel like, I, but I should know better. And yes, we should know better. <laughs> but, but that doesn't, we're not perfect this side of heaven. And yet, if we're going to just try and grow in that perfection through guilt and shame and condemnation, well, if that's you, my question is, how's it working out for you? As opposed to pressing into the person of Jesus. Because again, grace is not just a principle, it's a person. So as we press into Jesus, and, and I mentioned last week, slow down enough to look at Him, looking at us with love, we'll be amazed at how He actually brings life into us, brings hope, brings perspective into us. And again, I think there are many reasons why we struggle with grace, our upbringing. Maybe you're brought up with guilt and shame, or your personality. Maybe if anything like me, you're a perfectionist where, where, where you're a little bit OCD, and if anything is is just not quite good enough. There's, a, there's like almost this low hum, this white noise of, of unsettledness or guilt or flat out shame and condemnation. I think our human nature struggles to accept grace and mercy when everything in us believes that we need to pursue justice. And in fact, it even sounds humble when, when we're unwilling to, you know, when we feel like, no, no, but I, I should take my cuts. I, I deserve separation from God or I deserve to be divorced or I deserve, you know, to be, to be shamed. And, uh, that's not actually humility. In some ways, it's a level of pride because we're taking full responsibility to somehow earn our way back. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever bought a meal for someone or, or a gift for someone and they've insisted on paying you back. Like at first, maybe you think they're just trying to be polite, but after a while, it becomes weird. Like even, 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 even insulting. Like why won't you accept my kindness? And that's not actually humility. That's a sense of pride. I don't want to owe you anything. And that's, that's misunderstanding grace. And, and one more reason that I think we struggle with grace is because I really do believe that we live in a spiritual environment. We have a spiritual enemy who wants to do everything he can to distract you and discourage you from God. And he is the father of lies. So, so his whole MO is to use lies and half truths and the most powerful lies are those that have an element of truth in it so he's going to so he's going to use something you've done against you and and the problem is that there's an element of truth in it but it's not the whole truth so yes you did that wrong yes you screwed up again yes you were ugly again racist selfish uh you you, you abused your power you were manipulative again yes 
Yes, you did that, but that's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that God is actually able to forgive you and help you grow through that and keep moving forward. Everything about the enemy is to discourage you. Everything about God is to actually help build you up and give you hope and help you to keep on moving because you are his son or daughter. A parent doesn't look at a son or a daughter and try to make them feel worthless and useless in the hope that that's going to motivate them to change. A loving parent looks at a son or daughter and wants to do everything they can to breathe hope into them and to breathe life into them and to let them know, I still believe in you. I'm not going to identify you with with that one area of weakness. In all seriousness, I want to caution you. When we do that, when we identify someone as a whole person with an area of weakness, I think we're lining up more with Satan than what we are with Jesus. We're dehumanizing that person. We're just making them about their, their mistake or about their addiction or about their pattern. If you've been around for a while, you've heard me use the statement that Jesus knows your name. Sorry, Jesus knows your shame but calls you by your name, whereas Satan knows your name but calls you by your shame. Satan wants to identify you with your shame, where Jesus wants to identify you with your name, your, your purpose, who, who God has, has called you to be. I remember many years ago, Sue and I both had people in our lives that we cared about that were struggling with an addiction. And I, found my, I realized that when I would speak about the person in her life, I would, I would refer to this person as their addiction. I would say they're an addict. When I would refer to the person in my life, I would refer to them struggling with this addiction. And I felt like God actually pointed out to me the one day that I love this person. That's why I'm not identifying them with their struggle. Whereas I'm actually not loving this person. And that's why, that's why I am identifying them with their struggle. God does not call you by your struggle. God does not call you by your weakness. God does not call you by that thing that you're wrestling over. God calls you by your name. He calls you by who he's made you to be. And that, I believe, is grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8. I mean, just in case you've been getting nervous, the Bible has a lot to say about this. I've just got a few passages of scripture that I want to read to you. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says that God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. Like the author, Paul, the author of this particular passage is trying to make it so clear. You cannot take any credit for it. It is a gift from God. And I would argue that that's not just at salvation. That's even as you continue to try and grow and mature. It is by the grace of God. Verse 9 says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We are, we are pursued by grace. We are saved by grace. We are sustained by by grace. Jesus is grace. Grace is not just a principle, it is a person. In Romans 5 verse 8, it says that God showed his great love for us. I mean, if you want to know how much God loved us, look at what Jesus was willing to do on the cross. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, before we could have earned anything, before we even requested anything. He died for us. In fact, the verse just before that in verse 6 says that while we were, when we were utterly helpless, when we were utterly helpless, Romans 5 or 6 says, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. There's a, a great um, illustration of this found in the true story that is recorded in the book of John chapter 8. I won't read the whole story to you. Many of you are familiar with this. 
it's, it's a well-known story even, even in secular circles of this woman who is caught in adultery. And she's dragged before Jesus by religious leaders, which there's just so much about that picture that is so horribly wrong. And again, I just want to point out to you, if, you're, if you are a Christian and you think it's your responsibility to correct other people, I want to, I want to challenge you. It's not your responsibility to correct or shame or condemn other people. It's your responsibility to connect with people. We don't have to correct them. We connect. Jesus, I believe, first connects with people. And, and through relationship, as, as time goes along, when they're ready, he, He's able to point out areas that, of, of greater life and greater hope and greater wholeness and meaning. So this lady is, is dragged in front of Jesus. I mean, we just cannot even begin to imagine the amount of shame. I mean, if you imagine all, all of your worst secrets, and then multiplying that, and then being dragged out in, in public in front of a culture that, that is wanting to stone you, besides the fact that they're not bringing the guy along with it, like there's just everything about this is so horribly wrong. But, but besides how messed up this situation is, the reality is that this lady has been caught in an act of failure, in an act of sin. And I don't want it to be lost on us how Jesus responds to a legit situation. You see, the answer to sin is not to water it down. We're not talking about tolerance and ugh, every, everything's okay, you be you. It's, no, 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 that's, that's not grace. That's, that's tolerance. That's, that's watering stuff down. That's, that's just trying to make everything okay, which means that nothing's really a standard. No, no, she was caught in a mistake. The way that they dealt with her was despicable, but she was caught in a mistake. And here Jesus, I believe, represents God so well in the way that he treats her. The religious leaders were, were trying to trap him, and in verse 7 it says that they kept demanding an answer. So he's, uh, sorry, rather, verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Again, many of you, of, of you are familiar with the story. A lot of scholars. Um, I think that the general view is that Jesus was in all likelihood writing down the mistresses of these religious uh, leaders, either, either the mistresses that they themselves were secretly involved with or, or other sin that they were somehow secretly engaged in. Jesus wrote on, uh, in the dust. Then in verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned Throw the first time. Maybe you've heard that statement or that cliche before. This is where it comes from. Let, let whoever has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote some more in the dust. I think, again, just writing down names or writing down sins. And then verse 9 says that when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. Look at this, beginning with the oldest. It's interesting how, how sometimes the older we get, the more aware we are of our own failure and our own shortcoming until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman where are your accusers didn't even one of them condemn you no Lord she said and Jesus said neither do I go and sin no more see grace grace is seen in both of those last sentences or statements there are two statements that you'll see the full stop. Neither do I, so I don't condemn either. In other words, I forgive you. I'm giving you grace. But at the same time, grace says, okay, go and sin no more. Grace forgives us and frees us, 
and grace empowers us to actually take steps in living the life that God has called us to live. I love the way that Chris Hodges addresses this tension between what we think is a tension between grace and truth. He says that truth without grace is mean. Again, some of us need to remember that. Truth without grace is mean. I've seen some mean Christians over the years. There are still some mean Christians on the internet and TV. That's a whole other story. Truth without grace is mean. However, grace without truth is meaningless. And that's the overcorrection. That's the other extreme. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. However, truth and grace is medicine. Truth and grace is medicine. And again, it comes back to this word salvation. Solve, to bring healing. It's, a, it's an ointment. Grace is like an ointment that, that I believe God wants to apply in our lives that brings healing and wholeness. So here we have this woman who, as far as we know, wasn't looking for grace. Grace found her. Last week I made reference in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, to Peter, who was known as Simon at the time. So Simon Peter, how, how he was about to deny Jesus. So he was about to screw up royally. And again, he wasn't even looking for grace in that moment, but Jesus had already offered that grace. He said, Simon, I've already prayed for you. And remember that word? He said, I've prayed that your faith will not fail. We spoke about how that word means to eclipse, that, 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 that his faith will not be blocked out by his failure, that, that God will not be blocked out of his life, that, that that failure, that that shortcoming is not going to block out the light of God in his life. So, so the reason I'm pointing these out is because for all I know, this woman was not in a relationship with God. However, Peter was in a relationship with God. So I want to encourage you if you're in a relationship and you're struggling to accept God's grace because you think that you know better. You're in good company. Peter went on to help change the world, but he had to keep accepting the grace of God. It was the only way for him to keep taking his foot out of his mouth and put the next one in and move on and try again and try again and try again. So we see a lady in the New Testament who wasn't looking for grace, wasn't in a relationship with God, grace found her. We see, we see Simon Peter, who, who was in a relationship with God, didn't even know at the time they needed grace, and, and Peter had, uh, Jesus had already offered it. And then lastly, some of you are familiar with the story of Jonah, and, and how, uh, so this is in the Old Testament. The reason I'm pointing this out is because some people think that God had a change of personality, and that he was really ugly and mean and, and short-tempered in the Old Testament, and really kind and sweet and gracious and Father Christmassy in the New Testament. And and again, if you read the Old Testament properly, you're going to see God's outrageous grace. And we can judge Jonah for not wanting to go to the city of Nineveh. You know, he hops onto the ship going in the opposite direction. The big storm comes. They realize that this must be something supernatural. And they, and they start hunting, trying to figure out the, the origin. Jonah owns up and says, it's me. I'm disobeying God. Throw me over. He gets caught up in a fish, survives a couple of days, eventually goes to Nineveh. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he knew how great, like he was almost annoyed by how gracious and kind God was. I can't, I can't begin to describe to you how evil the Assyrians and the, and the city of Nineveh was. Whatever you think of some of the war crimes that, that have taken place in the last few decades or the last hundred years, using chemical weapons, murdering women and children, this city, this nation was, in my opinion, more evil. I, I was reading up a little bit about it the other day, and, and I thought, I actually can't even repeat some of the stuff that, that historians um, accord to them because it's just so disturbing. It's so wicked. 
So you can understand Jonah saying, I don't want you to forgive them. I don't want you to give them. I know that they will. You are so gracious. You are going to forgive them and you are going to give them another chance. I don't want to give them the opportunity to turn and repent and to experience your grace. It's a crazy, it's it's a story worth reading. It's a short little book. Jonah was so frustrated by how gracious God was in the Old Testament. God's grace is completely reckless. It is completely out of the ordinary. You cannot fully get your head around it. Last story is something that, again, I'm actually not sure if I first came across this in Tim Keller's book, uh, The Prodigal God, or if I'd heard him maybe share it in a, in a, in a message many years ago, but he told the story about a film that some of you might have watched many years ago called uh, Three Seasons. It's an acclaimed foreign film about life in post-war Vietnam. And the two main characters are Hai, not Hai, H-I, but H-A-I, Hai, who's this bicycle rickshaw driver, so very low earner. And then this, this beautiful prostitute by the name of Lan. Hai loves Lan. He is besotted with her. Uh, he, is, he is deeply, deeply uh, interested in her, but she's completely out of his price range. Even though Lan gets to enjoy staying in elegant hotels for a few hours, she's actually desperately poor and has never been able to spend the night in a hotel. She goes back to her grinding poverty every night after spending a few hours with one of her clients. She hopes that the money that she will make from prostitution will be her means of escape, but instead the work like so many other things in our lives, brutalizes and enslaves her. The very thing that she thinks is going to save her, enslaves her. Sometimes the very thing that we think is going to save us, enslaves us. And then High enters a, a rickshaw race and wins the top prize. And with the money that he wins, he brings Lan to the hotel that she enjoys the most. And he pays for the night, he pays her fee. And then to everyone's surprise, He tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. He's taken all of this prize money. Like this is his dream to to be able to take a step in the direction of of wooing Lan. But all he does is create the space for her to just enjoy one night without being used, without being misused, where she can just enjoy this, this beautiful environment. Instead of using the power of his wealth to have sex with her, he spends it to purchase a place for for her for one night in the normal world to fulfill her desire to simply belong. As you might imagine, Lan finds such grace virtually impossible to to actually cope with. She finds it incredibly troubling, incredibly disturbing. She assumes that, that he's doing this in order to be able to control and manipulate her. And when it becomes apparent that he's using his power to serve rather than use her, it begins to transform her, making it impossible to return to a life of prostitution. And I just think it is such an incredible picture of what Jesus has done for us at the cross and continues to do for us through grace. Jesus had all the power in the world He saw us enslaved by the very things that we thought would free us. And so he emptied himself of his glory and paid the debt for our sins 
purchasing for us the only place that our hearts can actually find rest. A relationship with the Father, knowing that this will transform us from the inside out. Like, why wouldn't we want to offer ourselves to a God like this? Why wouldn't we trust someone who is so gracious, who is so kind? And I want to end off by telling you that there's an invitation. Whether you're checking out Christianity, checking out religion in general, or whether you've been on this road for a long time in a relationship with God already, I want to encourage you to respond to the invitation of grace. Hebrews 4 verse 16, speaking about Jesus, says, so let us, this is, this is talking like, like, like we're invited, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And take a look at what we'll find there. There you will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Notice it doesn't say you'll find grace at the day of salvation only. No, no, you'll find grace when you need it most. Where do you need grace right now? Where do you need grace? If God would answer a prayer, if God would bring healing somewhere, if God would bring hope somewhere, where do you need grace right now? Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I want to encourage you. Grace is a person, not a principle. You are invited into the throne to approach the throne, the, the altar, the environment where Jesus wants to offer us whatever grace we need most in that particular moment. And I can't encourage you enough to be bold enough to be honest with God, to be real with God. Say, God, please, I do want to know you more. I want to know your will. I want to have your plan fulfilled for my life. And if you're, if you're checking church out, if you're checking Christianity out, and you're wondering what that next step might look like, besides clicking on the Connect With Us button just now, which I encourage you to do, and allow us to offer you some next steps as to how to just grow in that relationship with the Bible and prayer, it really does simply begin with responding to that invitation, saying, God, please do come into my life. Help me to accept your forgiveness and help me to follow you. Come on, I want to encourage you to pray with me before we wrap up. Father, thank you so much for your unbelievable grace, your reckless, extravagant, hard to get our heads around grace. Thank you that your grace pursues us long before we ever respond to you. And God, I pray that you'd help us to recognize your invitation to come to you boldly. Help us to recognize your invitation to, to open our, our hands to the grace and the mercy that you want to offer us. Lord, wherever people are especially discouraged today, God, I pray that you would offer hope. Lord, that, that you would do more than just an intellectual stimulation. Lord, that, that, that you would help people to sense your tangible presence. Help us, Lord, to accept your presence and your kindness. And help us to keep pursuing Jesus. Help us, to, help us, Lord, not to make excuses, but help us to actually create space. Help us to spend time worshiping, reading, praying in blocks of time as well as throughout our day. God, help us to draw close 
to grace, to draw close to Jesus. And for those that are making that decision today to begin a relationship with you, God, I pray that they would experience you washing them completely clean, removing their sins from them as far as the east is from the west, and that they would have a sense of your love warming their hearts, melting their hearts, and drawing them into their next step. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Grace and peace, everybody.